What's up, everybody? Coming to you live from my parents' house. Ooh, you like that intro? I like that riff a little bit. Here is episode 31 of the Changavi Show. For those of you that are new, welcome. I am a Nuge. Last name is in the show, so you should probably know that. Here we talk about everything trending from sports to pop culture to news. So everything that you possibly could be wanting to talk about, we're going to discuss. Plus, much, much more. Oh, that's my little newscaster voice. Y'all like that? For my OGs, you, you, you were probably like, what the fuck was that? Okay. Hello. Um, hope y'all are doing amazing. Hope y'all have had a good week so far, but we got a lot to talk about and I got like eight topics ahead of us today, all sorts of departments, all sorts of areas of discussion, but you know, we start every show, every one of the 31 episodes has always started out with a quick check-in with your host. So what's the vibe, Anuj? How are the vibes? The vibes are terrible. No, I'm kidding. Um, the vibes, yeah. They're not the best right now. Um, and the reason for that is the fact that spring quarter just started at De Anza, uh, which is where I go to college, by the way. Um, community college. Yay. Uh, spring quarter just started. Spring quarter sucks. Uh, it's terrible. Um, uh, because this is the quarter last year that I burnt out. And I just like completely eradicated myself off the face of the earth after I was done with calculus. And uh, I'm not even going to lie to you. I kind of am worried that I'm going to have something similar happen uh, this time around as well. But I, I'm trying to figure out good ways to make sure that doesn't happen. One of them is that I've already got into school, so I got to decide where I'm going to school. So theoretically, all I have to do is really pass all my classes. So why are you worried? But anyway... Anyway, the vibes suck because I just don't like school and I don't <laughs> I'm taking freaking geology and geology is just the most useless class uh, of all time. If you're not if you're not uh, listen, no hate to geology majors out there. OK, I respect the grind. I respect the fact you want to study rocks and the Earth's geological formations and the shifts of tectonic plates. But that is not your boy's vibe. I, I'm just not into that. Um, at least right now. Maybe, maybe in a few, maybe Changabi show episode 61 will be tectonic plates and all the earthquakes that could possibly hit California very, very soon. I don't know. I don't know, bro. Maybe. But I just don't want to take geology. And I guess I've just been feeling shitty about that the last couple of days. But other than that, though, things are things are picking up in life. Uh it's kind of weird. I feel like the COVID chapter is slowly coming to a close, even for me, the one, the, the kid that got stuck inside for two years. Um, no, but things, things are, things are changing. It's spring. The weather's beautiful here in the Bay. So not much to complain about, but the vibes are still kind of shitty because school started and I don't like school. Uh, as I've made very clear on several segments on not only the after show, but the Chingabi show as well. Okay. Listen, now that that's all over and we can get my vibes out of the way and stop talking about me, let's get into what we have to talk about today, which is the NBA playoffs. <laughs> nah, the NBA playoffs. Listen, this is a topic I want to talk about because what the hell? I don't know if you guys can hear that, but there's a freaking truck outside my house. It is 1140 at night. I, I uh, Theoretically, this shouldn't happen. But anyway, the NBA playoffs, okay? We did a similar topic with the Super Bowl way back when, I think episode 24, 23, something like that. Early 20s, we did a Super Bowl episode where I basically broke down the Super Bowl for all of my new fans. 
and for all of my people that wanted to get into football and didn't really know how. Um, because you know, it's a, it's a big event and everybody wants to know the, like everybody wants to be there and everybody wants to be in the know, but there's not enough resources out there breaking down the game. And so that's why I broke down the game for the Super Bowl. And so I basically really want to do the same thing with the NBA playoffs, which is listen, the playoffs are complicated. There's a lot of significant, there's a lot of things going down in regards to teams and seating and all of these things. And there's a lot of layers going down and I'm sure, uh, there's a lot of people out there. Uh, who want to impress their significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, partners, whatever. And so to amaze those people in your life, I got you. I am your resource to fix your relationship and to spend time with your significant others. Okay, people? So partners that don't know sports, relax. Chingavi's got you. The Chingavi Show is here for you to explain what exactly is going on in the NBA. So let's get right into it. What is it looking like this year with the NBA playoffs? Okay. Pretty simple. So traditionally, probably what you're used to is like, oh, we're just going to discuss the playoffs, right? The NBA is going to go right into it. There's going to be seeds one through eight on both sides. They're going to compete. And then there's going to be a champion at some point. That was the traditional look. So that was traditionally, it was the top eight teams of each conference, two conferences in the NBA, East and the West, make the playoffs. And basically, it's their job to make it through the bracket. This year, though, this year, like last year, but we didn't do this last year, it's a little different. It's a little different. There's been a new element that has been added into the playoffs, uh, a pre-playoff tournament of sorts. Anuj, what the frick does that even mean? Okay, let's talk about it. There's something called the play-in tournament that's going on in the NBA right now. Okay, the play-in tournament is basically a tr- uh, is basically a tournament that's for both the West and the East, played separately with between seeds seven through 10. So the seventh best through the 10th best teams in each conference are going to gather and play a tournament uh, to determine who gets the last two playoff spots. So seeds one through six right now are locked, but seven and eight are still being fought over by these respective four teams. So if that makes any sense. So seven, eight, nine, and 10 are competing for the seventh and the eighth spot. And it's a tournament to determine who can you know, potentially go to the playoffs. So basically the way it works is that the seven seed and the eight seed of each conference are going to play each other. And the nine and the 10 seed of each uh, of each conference are going to play each other. So the seven seed of the West and the eight seed of the West play each other, the nine seed of the West and 10 seed of the West uh, play each other as well. Same thing goes for the East. Okay. So the winner of that of the seven, eight matchup gets the seven seed in the playoffs. So they don't have to play anymore in the play in tournament. They're out of the play in tournament and they get the seven seed in the playoffs, but that's the winner of the seventh seed versus the eight seed. So they get the seventh seed, but then the loser of the seven, eight matchup. So, you know, whichever seed lost goes on to play another game. And that's between the winner of the ninth seed and the 10th seed. So the winner of the ninth seed and the 10th seed will move on and play another game versus the loser of the seventh, eighth seed matchup to determine who gets the final spot in the playoffs. And basically the loser of that gets eliminated and the winner gets the final spot of the playoffs. It adds a little more drama and intrigue and the commissioner introduced it a couple of years ago. Um, and it's been done in different variations, but they figured out last year that this variation caused a lot of drama and it was uh, pretty intriguing. So they decided to keep it uh, another year. And I think they're going to continue to keep this a part of the NBA playoffs. So it's good to explain it now so that in the future, when you guys are confused, 
you would have this idea in mind. The play-in tournament is going to exist. So the play-in tournament is going to happen before the playoffs. And when the play-in tournament finishes, you are locked into your top eight seeds of each conference. You know which seeds are going to be in the East and which seeds are going to be in the West. So right now, the thing is, the NBA regular season hasn't wrapped up yet. It's currently in the process of wrapping up. We haven't even gotten to the point where we're having the play-in tournament. Um, and so it's wrapping up and closing out. And so, you know, we, we, there, there are a lot of seeds, uh, still to be in contention, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot going on and and the seeding of each conference is potentially going to be, uh, changed. So what I mean by seeding is the ranking of each team could go up or down based on these final games. If they win or they lose, you know how it is, right? The, The more games you win, the higher up you go in the standings. If you lose a couple, you could drop. So there's a lot of variation right now, but let's go through the current standings as of today, which is, I believe, Wednesday night. Um, So uh, Wednesday, April 6th, as of Wednesday, April 6th, these are the standings, okay, in each conference. And I'm going to go through them really quickly and explain them as fast as I can. So let's start with the Western Conference. Okay, this is the Western Conference only. And these are the teams that are relevant to the playoffs right now. Number one is the number one seed in the conference. And this is locked up, guaranteed. They are going to be the number one seed of the Western Conference. Phoenix Suns. The number two seed is the Memphis Grizzlies. They've clinched the playoffs, but their seeding is still in question. But they'll most likely be the two seed. Number three is Golden State, which is the Golden State Warriors, my team. They are the number three seed. Their seeding is still also in flux uh, with, and could, they could potentially drop. But the farthest that Golden State could drop down to is number four. So they've clinched home court advantage, which basically means they uh, get more home games than the other team does. Anyway, number four, the number four seed right now is Dallas, but they could also switch with Golden State and they could also drop potentially. Number five is the Denver Nuggets. Number six is the Utah Jazz. And then those are the six right now for the cutoff of the playoffs. Those are the six. Those one through six are making the playoffs for sure. They don't have to worry about the play-in tournament. So now here comes the play-in tournament seeds, seven through 10. The seventh seed in the East, or sorry, the seventh seed in the West is Minnesota, the Minnesota Timberwolves. Number eight is the LA Clippers. Number nine is the New Orleans Pelicans. And number 10 is the San Antonio Spurs. So these four teams are going to be competing for the final two spots in the playoffs. What will happen with those four teams? We will see. But it is guaranteed that it is going to be these four teams headed into the play-in tournament. Their seeding could potentially change. San Antonio could be the nine seed potentially. Uh, LA could also drop to the nine. New Orleans could go up to the eight, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of flux in terms of the seeding of the play-in tournament, but those four teams... Minnesota, LA, uh, the Minnesota, the Clippers, the LA Clippers, New Orleans Pelicans, and the San Antonio Spurs are going to be the four play-in teams for the Western Conference, just maybe in different seating order than we may expect right now as of Wednesday. Then in the East, the number one seed of the East is locked up and good to go. The Miami Heat will be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. The number two seed will be the Boston Celtics. Uh, I believe they're also locked up too. Number three as of right now, but could change potentially is Milwaukee. Number four is the Philadelphia 76ers. Number five is the Chicago Bulls. And number six are the Toronto Raptors. So those are the six seeds right now that are locked in for the playoffs. 
they could potentially, you know, move up or down and potentially uh, Toronto uh, and potentially Toronto could actually move into this play in tournament stage that we're about to talk about right now for the East. So the top six, Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Toronto. Then there's seven through 10, which is Cleveland. The Cleveland Cavaliers are the seven seed right now. The Atlanta Hawks are the eight seed. The nine seed is Charlotte, the Charlotte Hornets. And the number 10 seed is the Brooklyn Nets. So those are the four seeds right now that are competing for the play-in tournament. But the thing is, the seeding in the East is such that Toronto could potentially drop into that seven spot and compete in the play-in tournament. And Cleveland could potentially move up into the sixth spot and clinch a playoff spot without having to compete in the play-in tournament. Okay, so there's there's some variation with the seeding, and unfortunately, I can't give you guys full clarity on what the seeding is going to look like when it comes to the playoffs. I'm doing the best I can, you know, because of the fact that the NBA regular season hasn't ended, and a couple games here and there could change the seeding and could potentially change what we're looking at in terms of the big playoff picture. But let's talk storylines, right? We talk numbers, we talk the rankings, whatever. That shit doesn't matter. What do I need to know right now as a casual NBA fan that's trying to impress my significant other? Okay, here is what you need to know right now. The biggest storyline of this year's NBA playoffs is that the fact is that there are about, out of all of the 16 teams that will compete in the NBA playoffs, there's about 12 or 13, there's about 10 or 11 that could, that have a good case and a good argument to win an NBA championship right now. In my opinion, I think there are a lot of teams in the NBA. It's the it's in the NBA playoffs right now. It's the most wide open it's been in a while, and there isn't a lot, and there isn't uh, a lot of uh, dynastic powers that are going to you know continue to advance. I would say right now that the toughest, the best teams, quote unquote, in the NBA are the Phoenix Suns. Uh, and I would say I would say that they are considerably right now the best team in the league uh, is what I would describe. They're going to be a tough out. Uh, they're deep. They have a lot of stars on their team, et cetera, et cetera. But that we don't have to get into the intricacies of basketball. So the storyline, the main storyline in this year's playoffs is there's about 10 teams that can potentially pull off a championship. So this year, if you are any team, you just want to get into the dance. Because if you get into the dance, you're giving yourself an opportunity to potentially win a series. And you never know what happens when if your team gets hot and goes on a playoff run then you could potentially find yourself in a position to win a championship, which was something that maybe you weren't even thinking about. So the fact is, there are a lot of teams that can win a championship here in this year's playoff race. Okay, what are the storylines? What are the other storylines that are going on? One of the other major storylines is that this is this this playoffs can honestly be defined as the changing of the guard playoffs uh, in a lot of ways. If you look at a lot of the teams in both the West and the East, a lot of them are filled with one common theme, and that's younger pl- younger players, younger, durable players. The older players like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, LeBron James was actually just eliminated from the playoffs yesterday with the Lakers, and Kevin Durant is playing for the Brooklyn Nets, which are competing for a play-in tournament spot, which means that you could potentially go through the playoffs without seeing, quote-unquote, two of the best five players in the NBA. That's pretty crazy. So now you're going to get to see younger stars. So the younger stars are going to be the storyline of this playoffs. The younger people uh, who are, you know, in their 20s, their mid-20s who are coming up. This is the, this playoffs is the playoffs of the young. And 
some of the younger players that maybe you guys need to look at, and I'm just suggesting a few, um, are Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton on Phoenix, John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain in Memphis, Jordan Poole and Jonathan Kuminga on the Warriors. I just put that in there because I'm plugging. Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson on Dallas. Jokic, uh, Nikola Jokic um, on the Denver Nuggets. Donovan Mitchell on the Jazz. That's just the West. And in the East, you can look at guys like Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo for the Miami Heat, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown for the Boston Celtics, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is who won an NBA championship with Milwaukee last year, Philadelphia, some of the young guys that could potentially uh, you could look at are Tyrese Maxey and um, what's the other guy's name? Uh, I'm forgetting, man. But uh, and James Harden is on Philadelphia. Uh, he's a little bit older, but you know he's kind of in that sort of winning, trying to win a championship type vibe. Chicago's got a guy by the name of Nikola Vucevic, DeMar DeRozan, who I mean they're older, but they're they're still kind of in that. So, uh, but they have young guards. They have a young guard by the name of Zach Levine, who's absolutely electric to watch. Um, Toronto has a lot of young pieces, and then they have Pascal Siakam as well, who's also kind of a younger guy. Cleveland, Jared Allen uh, on Cleveland. You get the idea. There's a lot of young players in this year's playoffs that could potentially make some noise. And this is this this is the year for the young guns. This isn't the year for LeBron James and Kevin Durant and the classic NBA storylines that we've seen for a while. This is the year of the young ones, and that is the coolest part of this year's playoffs: the injection of youth. And I think one of the things that probably should have told us that this was going to happen was Phoenix and Milwaukee last year which reflected that the NBA has basically moved on from the old guard in a lot of senses because Phoenix last year was relatively the same team that it is now. Yes, they have a veteran point guard in Chris Paul, but they have a young core in Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, in Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, as well as Mikhail Bridges and Cameron Payne. Um, and as well as Milwaukee, that's got Giannis and Chris Middleton. Uh, they're two young stars, and they're also surrounded by a bunch of other younger depth pieces as well. So that happened last year, and now we're seeing the youth come into play as well this year. Another storyline heading into the playoffs, though, besides the youth, is the fact that several stars are injured right now. So there are a lot of star players, a lot of these old guard players that are getting injured. Guys like Ben Simmons, Kawhi Leonard, and other stars whose presence, quite frankly, would greatly help the teams that they're on. But unfortunately, they can't participate in the playoffs due to some pretty severe injuries that they're facing. Or they may come back potentially if their teams advance or later into the playoffs. Um, this is the point in the NBA season where like all the stars are racing to rehab uh, before the playoffs. You guys, you got guys like Steph and Morant and John Morant, who's that star young guard I talked about in Memphis, who are just racing to get their injuries rehabbed so that they could they're good to go for Game One of the first round. And so it's mass injury updates all around right now for for the NBA. And so if your significant other is an NBA fan, they will be checking their and they have a player that's on injured reserve, but it's looking to potentially come back for the playoffs. They're probably refreshing their phone every so often just to see uh, some injury updates in there. Okay, what's what is going on in the playoffs? What is the structure of the playoffs? Let me explain the structure real quick. I know this topic went on a while, but I wanted to really just break down what's going on and what you guys need to know for the playoffs. Anyway, structure of the playoffs right now. Seven games through the entire way. 
This isn't like baseball where it goes from three games in the first round to five to eventually seven. This is seven games the entire way. So seven game series the entire way. First team to win four games wins the series and moves on to the next round. The play-in, like I discussed earlier, is going to be pretty interesting because on the East, you have a team like Brooklyn that's got guys like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving that could potentially have enough firepower to make a run. And grab one of those final two seeds, which could mean potentially upsetting a Miami or a Boston in the first round, which are much younger teams like I discussed earlier. So there is some interesting sides at play, particularly in the Eastern Conference. Uh, there are a lot of what-ifs in the air right now in terms of seeding and all of that. And once the seeding gets locked in, there's going to be more clear storylines. But it's shaping up to be a really exciting month, a couple months of basketball, a really exciting postseason with a lot of new stars and a lot of new potential storylines to keep in touch with. I promise you, I will keep you guys updated on what's going on with the NBA playoffs. This is like my life. I love the playoffs. I think the NBA playoffs, I think basketball playoffs hit different. Uh, I, I know the NFL playoffs are crazy good, but the basketball, but the NBA playoffs are another level of intense. Uh, and if you're particular, if you're a huge NBA fan, like you love the playoffs, this is, this is the time of year that you want to be in, into basketball because it's just, it's so exciting and it's so, it's so cool. And I didn't talk about the Warriors that much. I told you, but I'm hoping the best for them, they're the three seed right now, because they're my team and I want them to see them do well, Bay area born and raised. So we're praying for them too. Uh, if you're not praying for them and you're listening to my podcast, then uh sucks. But but yeah, uh, there is a lot of storylines. I don't even cover a lot of the storylines like within team to team. Uh, if you wanted me to do a whole episode on that, I can do that as well. Let me know. But yeah, that's the basics. Breaking down the NBA playoffs so that your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner doesn't have to explain it to you when you're sitting there on the couch asking all the questions when they're trying to watch their team. So impress them with maybe a little bit of knowledge that you have here. Okay, that's all I have with this topic. Let's move on because we got another topic I want to talk about. And I think this one might be a little bit more interesting for some people. This one's going to be a little quicker, but this one might be a lot more interesting for a lot of people because I really wanted to talk about, you know, we talked a little bit about St. Peter's on the last episode and we talked about how they had such a beautiful underdog story and they made it all the way to the Elite Eight and all of these things. But meanwhile, while the national championship was happening on Monday, it just totally glossed over, it glossed over everybody's head, really, that the the fact that the women also had an NCAA tournament and that UConn and South Carolina dueled it out on Sunday, the day before, and UConn, or, and sorry, and South Carolina and Aaliyah Boston came out on top and won the NCAA tournament for women's basketball. Um, women's college basketball is actually so competitive and it's so fun to watch. The players are, are really freaking good. They can play the game at a very high level. And it's a college sports tournament that doesn't get talked about at all, really a lot. It's it's kind of a subculture within college basketball. But like I said earlier, it's it's truly basketball played at a very high level and basketball in kind of a more pure form. Uh, I was discussing this with a friend a couple years ago, and she was telling me, she's like, if you watch women's basketball, the 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 way that they construct plays and they run sets and they run like their system is very, uh, it's much more basketball fundamentally oriented rather than like men's basketball and like even in college and in the pros, which is much more ISO ball and much more like individual, like one-on-one matchups. And women's basketball is more of a team-oriented sport. And I think in watching a little bit that I ha- in watching the little bit of women's basketball that I have, I have noticed that pattern really come to life, which is kind of cool. Um, but anyway, 
that's that's the sport of it. But what, let's talk about some of these athletes, man, because there have been so many awesome WNBA athletes who have come through this college tournament um, and play basketball, like I said, at this at this different style and this different level. And I honestly, I, I'm going to say this right now. I would watch a lot more on WNBA basketball. I would. I don't right now. If there was a team in my area, 100%, I would be watching Bay Area WNBA basketball. Freaking 100%. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I would watch a lot of WNBA basketball if there was a uh, if there was a Bay Area team. I'm just saying, WNBA, where's the Bay Area team at? Oakland, San Francisco. We could use one. We could freaking use one. And I would be their first fan. Um, I can't honestly, like me personally, as, as an individual can't really get into a sport without me having a rooting interest in something and to have a rooting interest for me, there's gotta be a connection. And so the only way there would really be a connection for me is if I really liked a player, uh, and just like watch that team and I would just be a fan of that team or if it was in the location and I would just, I would love there to be a Bay WNBA team and WNBA, the WNBA in general is like a very growing sport. So I would love to see there be more teams across the country and uh, hopefully the popularity continues to go up. That would be my hope. Um, but some of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite uh, lady ballers, uh, but <laughs> lady ballers, I guess what's a good term for it? I guess some of my favorite female ballers um, are Page bet like these are my favorites. Like these are these are the ones like I've been following for a while and I really like. Uh I really like Paige Beckers. I love the way she plays basketball. Uh I think she put she they call her the female staff. She's kind of like it. She can just pull up from 50 feet and drill shots. Like she's super fun. Uh she plays with like a swagger to her uh, to her. That's like that's hella fun. Like she just has that contagious energy when she's on the court. Um she's a flashy like guard, and I, I just like I I love watching her play. She's a lot of fun. Sabrina Inescu, who's more of like that small forward, like she's more of a wing um, for those of you that are familiar with basketball. So it's not a lot of like, you know, ball handling or any of that, but it's like getting down. Like for her, it's like, you know, finding those mid range jumpers. Uh, she played like facilitating the basketball and she does it really well and really effectively. I've been watching her since Oregon. Um, so definitely go check out Paige Beckers and Sabrina Nesky if you're like into basketball at all. And Caitlin Clark, Caitlin Clark is this guard from Iowa. She and Paige Beckers played in the Sweet 16 last year, um, for the NCAA tournament. Caitlin Clark is a shooter too. I love watching shooters. Like she can shoot the fucking ball, uh, <laughs> really well. I don't know if Iowa did that great this year, but Caitlin Clark had a hell of a season. I think she averaged like she she had a good she had a good season from what I saw. Um, but yeah, she's a shooter as well. So I, I don't know. I just, I like watching flash. Like I, I feel like everybody's got a type for basketball players and just players in general. Um, and my type for basketball players is flashy point guards or flashy guards in general. I just like watching like beautiful dimes. Um, that could come off so wrong based on what we're talking about right now. But I mean, just like beautiful passes, uh, just three point shots from 50 feet out. Like I just, I like, I like the splash. Uh, that's what I like. Um, and so I'm a big guard guy uh, when it comes to who I like, uh, even though Sabrina Mescu isn't a guard. She's a wing player, but she's a lot of fun. But here's the thing though. This is something I've noticed actually is my question is that why do like in the WNBA, one of the main rules actually for the WNBA is that these women have to stay in school for at least four years in order for them to compete professionally, or they have to be four years removed from high school. And so my question is like, why, why, why do, why can men get out of it after a year? Um, and like, like men 
you know, in, in college basketball for guys, like there are guys that can just declare after the NBA draft as soon as they lose in the NCAA tournament. Like they have no obligation to go back to school. They just, they lose in the NCAA tournament. Oh, time to, you know, move on with my basketball career and go to the pros. If, it's, if you're that talented, like Paige Beckers is extremely talented. Like she was the number one, I think she was like the number one recruit in her class out of high school for women. Like she, if she was a guy, like she would have gone to Duke, played for a year and probably been pro right now. She would have been pro. This would have been her rookie year this year in the league if she was a guy. But the fact is, she's a girl. So she's got to stay in school for four years and then go to the draft where she will probably most likely in all aspects be the number one overall pick. Um, but and the same thing with Sabrina, too. Like Sabrina Ineski was stuck in college for four years. And arguably, I mean, after her, I think yeah, her draft stock almost decreased TBH. Um, because I think she would have gotten number one after her junior year, but she went to her senior year. But I mean, that doesn't matter. She still went top of the draft. And even people like Cameron Brink, who's at Stanford, who led them to a final four run and Aliyah Boston, who are like great basketball players who could arguably, you know, go to the WNBA right now and play at a pretty high level are basically forced to stay at school, uh, longer than they should, which is a stupid rule. Like why can't younger player, why can't Paige Beckers at the age of 20 play in the WNBA? She could probably play at a high level. She could. I mean, does it help their development? Is there like scientific studies on this? I don't think so. I think it's just the fact that like these rules were probably written a while ago and there hasn't, you know, the WNBA isn't that popular sport, so it doesn't get talked about as much. But that's what we're here to do. Let's talk about it. It's just kind of a weird rule. But listen, women's basketball is a really cool sport. I don't watch a lot of it personally, like I said, but I really like watching Beckers um, and Clark and, uh, you know, in Eskew when she was there too. I watch a little bit of the New York Liberty games because that's where Sabrina plays as well. But that being said, I, I also heard, I've been hearing things about Cameron Brink from Stanford. Um, I've also been hearing the fact she's like the goddaughter of Del Curry, apparently. I had no idea. And on top of all of that, like she, she's basically like family with the Currys. So I, I guess that means I'm her biggest fan now. I, I guess I'm Cameron Brink's biggest fan because I love the Currys. No, <laughs> um, but hey, 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 if she be getting that private coaching from Steph, though, I'm just saying I may have to uh, support. But Sabrina and Steph are actually like friends, too, because Sabrina's from the Bay Area, which is even cooler. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's cool, like in terms of the, like in terms of a pure viewership perspective, like the female NCAA is really cool because you have that familiarity and that familiar aspect of things with like, you know, the same players coming back and you watching that same team over and over again for four years and then them graduating and moving on to the league. So you get very familiar, I guess, with lineups and, and the team if you're like a really big fan of them. Uh, so I could see that. Paige Beckers, I mean, don't feel bad if she's not making any money. Because Paige Beckers is making a shit ton of money. I mean, this whole like endorsement deal with colleges, like which we talked about actually on episode one, funny enough. Uh, Paige Beckers is making like, I think, 70 or 80K a year just off her name, or even more probably. Uh, just like being like she she has like merch that says like Paige Buckets on it. Like she's she's got plenty of money. Like, don't worry about Paige Beckers or any of the top WNBA or top potential WNBA draft picks because they're making plenty of money in college. Um, so it benefited them the most, really, that, that whole rule. But WNBA and, and female college basketball is really just an underbelly kind of, of basketball right now as a whole. And so it's going to be really exciting to see how this culture grows and how the WNBA and, and all of these things grow before our very eyes because it is a growing sport. And the fact is, like, we're in an era where uh, things are growing and things are changing. So 
going to be exciting to see how this all pans out. But yes, female March Madness did happen too. And I just wanted to acknowledge that before we move on, because we got three more topics left. Um, and I want to stay in detail with those because first class and that transition probably made no sense to anybody that doesn't know about the G L A M. Yeah. Glamorous baby. For those of you that do know, you know exactly who we're talking about here on this first segment of the Changavi show for pop culture. We're talking about Jack Harlow. Because Jack Harlow, this is probably a name that most of you have heard, not just me, not or, or not just because of me, but because of the fact that he is probably one of the most trending musicians in the world right now. And if you don't know who Jack Harlow is, you're definitely tripping, tripping, or you just don't listen to rap, which is cool too. So let me educate you. So I believe that Jack Harlow has arrived on the musical stage. And I think that is the most fair take. And I think that's just the most like, uh, average take that you could get so let's let's talk about jack harlow for a second we talked a little bit i talked a little bit about him on the after show had a little bit of fun singing his snippet talking about how he's just you know unifying generations together and all of these things but typically in hip-hop there's only really been space for one white rapper and typically uh for a lot of people the white like white rappers in general within the hip hop and the rap space are looked down upon they're looked at as you know cultural appropriators people who are breaking the space people who are breaking the art form that is reserved for the african american community i disagree with that form of thinking i think hip hop is something that can be inclusive of everybody but you know there are people out there that do think in hip hop purity so jack harlow <laughs> has done something that really not a lot of white people can do or have done in the first place. And the fact is, he is a white dude who has taken over hip-hop, okay? Look, he, obviously, he's not the number one. Like, I wouldn't call him the number one rapper of all time or, like, any of that stuff. Like, we can't say that. That's an overreach at this point. He's still 24. He's got a bunch more music to release. But I think we can fairly say this. I think we can fairly say that Jack Harlow has officially reached the conversation where he can be spoken with in the same breath as some of the best mainstream rappers right now in the game. I think he's reached that level of the conversation. I think his work is really good. I think his music is fun. It's a different vibe than maybe a J. Cole or a Kendrick Lamar uh, that's a little bit deeper and talks about much deeper, more emotional themes. But I would say that Jack Harlow has reached this level where we can talk about him in that breath of um, of some of the really, really good rappers because they are giving him recognition. Kanye West just shouted this man out on his Instagram. But, and I'm not saying all of this because of that snippet that came out and has gone viral on TikTok and everyone's vibing to it. It's a great snippet. It's a great song. It seems like it's going to be great. It's coming out tomorrow. I will let you know my thoughts. Um... But I'm not saying it, that it's just because of the snippet. I'm saying this because of who Jack Harlow is as a person. I think who Jack Harlow is as a person, it comes across as who he is as an artist. And it makes people in, more endearing to the fact that, you know, he is white and that he is all of these things. So let me explain to you, like, what I feel, why I feel that Jack Harlow uh, is going, is really close to the top of the rap game right now. I think the thing that makes Jack Harlow 
in my opinion, endearing to not only us, the fans, but the rappers in the game is that at heart, at heart, at his core, from everything publicly presented to me, at least, Jack Harlow has appeared to be a fan. He's a fan at heart, at in his soul. He is a fan of hip hop. He's a fan of rap. He's a fan of all of these things. You talk, you hear him talk about it in interviews. You see who he collaborates with on his music. He's collaborating with people that this guy was probably listening to in his headphones in seventh grade in his classroom. A similar experience that all of us have had who listen to rap. So above all, this man is a fan of the rap and he's a fan of the artists that make up the game. And so he's smiling and having a great time, like collaborating because he's like, dude, I'm living my dream. I'm literally talking to people. Like I can call J. Cole my colleague when I was probably, you know, six years ago uh, doing homework and listening to him over my shitty laptop speakers, right? That is what makes him endearing. He's just joyful to be there. And the fact is, like, rap and hip-hop a lot of times are about, it's about ego and it's about swag and it's about who has more shit and who has more money and who's got more bitches and all of these things. And Jack Harlow, you know, yes, he's got ego and he's got a little bit of swagger for sure in his rap and his bars and all of that. But there's a personality behind that. And the personality of Jack is, like I said, someone who's a fan and someone who's just appreciative and enjoyable, enjoying his opportunity. And so that's what makes him the guy in my eyes. That's why I really have grown to respect him a lot. And, you know, people can fucking call him a cultural appropriator and all these things and fuck them. He's, he, I don't think he is. Uh, I'd, I'd say the man is just a hardworking kid, like, most of America is trying to do it their respective career or their respective dreams. And he made it and that's dope. And listen, of course, there's so many other rappers out there that do awesome stuff. I'm not just trying to say Jack Harlow is the only one who's a fan of rap, but Jack definitely has that special charm about him for sure that not a lot of other people have. And let's take out the elephant in the room because every single girl I talk to about Jack Harlow the first words out of their mouth are, oh my God, Jack is so hot. He's super hot. Jack is super hot. And that's what Jack Harlow is. According to a lot of people, he's hot. And so that helps him too. Uh, listen, I don't think this man is hot. I, is it just me? Like, I, I don't think he's like, I don't see like the super attractive white boy feel, right? Like, He's just a he's just a dude. Like this is no disrespect to Harlow. I just went on a you know ten minute soliloquy about how I love the man. But like, is he like that good looking? Like, can the girls like tell me what the appeal is? And so I he looks like freaking Ryan from high school in my opinion. Like he just looks like the average white dude. Shout out to Ryan from high school by the way. You probably all my high school friends probably know exactly who I'm talking about. But. But like he's just he's just kind of like a middle of the road white dude in my opinion. I don't know. That's my opinion though. I could understand if you gave me a detailed argument as to why he's good looking. I I would I would understand that. But okay. Besides the looks, right? I think where the attraction comes from is this idea that he's so cool. He's just got this swag about him. He's he's hot shit now. You know he's got the personality and he's he he's a smooth talker. He is a smooth talker. I mean, I saw this shit with Sweetie. Like, there's you know this chicken shop day with Amelia Demoldenberg is so funny. Um, he's just he's he's very smooth with women from what I've seen publicly at least. And I think uh, I think Jack in that department has sold all the a lot of his girl fans for sure. And that's great. So, but I'm not a girl, so I can't say much. I can't talk about his looks. I can't talk about his attraction. I can't talk about any of that. So I'm not going to, you know, uh, continue to uh, discuss that matter. 
But looks aside, okay, why is Jack Harlow so relatable? Why? Like, I this is we still haven't dug into that fundamental question, right? We got we got to the fact he's a fan. We got to the fact that he's hot and girls like him, and maybe something to do with the fact that he's swaggy and fun and all these things. But why is Jack Harlow relatable? And then I was like doing a deep dive into Harlow's like personality and his upbringing and all of these things. Jack Harlow's the average white kid that you went to school with. That's why everybody likes him. He's the white kid from an average American family raised on a horse farm. His parents are named Maggie and Brian. There's probably 18,000 couples in the United States of America, Maggie and Brian, right? Like, shout out to Maggie and Brian, by the way. His family looks like the family that goes on Starbucks runs every day. They just look like the normal freaking American family. He's got a younger brother. My point is, like, the Harlow family and Jack Harlow is just an average freaking family. They're just average. And I think that's like Jack Harlow just being average makes all of us be like, yo, wait, I went to high school with someone like that. He could do it. And if he could do it, I saw how average he was at life. I could do it if I work really hard. And that and like seeing yourself or seeing aspects of yourself within a person is what makes the uh, situation like is what makes the person that much more relatable. I'm not saying Jack Harlow's average by any means. Uh, he's a great rapper and he's proven that like he can create a quality song. I'm not saying his songs are average by like I said, I'm not saying his songs are average, but I'm saying that he's very um he's just very relatable and he and that is the core of who Harlow is as a person. Like Cole, J. Cole and Kanye and Logic and Nas and Ice Cube. They all have great, like they they storytell about their experiences in life so well, right? And that is relatable to a certain segment of the population, right? Growing up in the hood and having, you know, selling crack to their, yeah, I'm not, I'm obviously like this is logic in particular, but like selling crack to his dad, you know, getting abused by the by his mom, you know, with Cole, like growing up in a rough neighborhood, with Kanye, like growing up to a single mom. Like these are experiences that can really resonate with people who have had those niche experiences, right? They've grown up in the streets. They all of these things. Like there's so many rappers like that who have that who rap about those emotional experiences and they make beautiful music. I'm not saying that that is incorrect, but Jack Harlow isn't from the streets. Right. Because let's be real. There's a lot of Americans out that most of the, the people who listen to rap right now are suburban teenagers driving around in Seven Springs in Cupertino. Those are the people that are listening to rap. And Jack Harlow isn't from the streets. He's just a kid who went to a normal high school, who was raised on a fucking farm. And he has a middle from a middle class family. And he's a kid in his 20s living his dream, calling Drake his colleague. That is the truth. That is the truth. And so it's different because. He gets this fair share of pushback, you know, because he's white and he may have grown up middle to upper class and all of these things. But he's he's a star. And now he's starting to find his voice a little bit and that personality is coming out. And so now it's, you know, all coming out. And a lot of people have said for a while that Jack Harlow is a fad rapper and fad, fad rapper. Like he's a fad, like fidget spinners or silly bands rapper. I want to make that clear. Uh, someone that would have had like the one hit song, you know, what's popping. And then he just dipped like Fetty Wap did or like designer or like broccoli, uh, or like dram, sorry, D R A M. 
Um, not Broccoli. Broccoli's a song. But I'm here to tell you that Jack Harlow is going to be a mainstay. I mean, just the way that people like this guy, just the way that people like his music, just the way that he's consistently been able to produce for the last couple of years here. Um, it's not it's not a lot of deep emotional music. It's a lot of like fun bars. It's very simple. It, you can groove to it. You can vibe to it. You can sing it. You know, just catchy music. It's fun. But I, I, I want to see him really try to take an emotional look. I think that would be like his next step up, in my opinion, as a rapper. Like someone who takes like a deep look at life, looks at emotions, all of these things. He's done it before. He's done it before. He's he's got songs that I really enjoy, like River Road and Baxter Avenue and Rendezvous, where he really does talk a lot about his uh, his life and does a really good job with those bars and really um, and and does a good job with that. Once May comes to a lot of uh, he's got a lot of bars in those songs that are just more emotional and more talking about his life, which is I I think is cool. Keep it light is one of my favorite Harlow songs too, and that's like a very you know, smooth and mellow song that talks about uh, his relationship with the industry and just friends in general. And I think it's cool. I think he talks about very relatable things and, and uh, I would like to see him do more of that. Uh, see how he can grow in that aspect of rap because he can make the party songs. We all know that he's very, very good at that. So hopefully, I mean this, this album with, you know, nail tech and fucking uh, first class seems like it's going to be a very party ask animal uh, album. You know, there may be a couple songs of emotion and talking about that type of stuff, but uh, I'm thinking it's going to be more of what we've seen in the past, but I would, that's my challenge. If Jack Harlow were to ever see this, give me an album where you're, you're talking about your existence or you're talking about issues or you're being, or you have a concept for an album that's uh, more based on your humanity, your existence as a human, like your existence. Uh, and I understand if you don't want to make that type of music, you're like, fuck you, dude. Why would I make that music? Like, that's just not my vibe. And that's fair. But I, I think that would be the way that would really show people that you can rap about a variety of things. And that could turn, that could get you into like the Drake and the J Cole conversation at that point. But for now, you know, you're still having a successful career. You're on fire. So who am I to talk? I'm just a kid in his fucking parents' house at 1223 in the morning talking about your career, hoping to get famous off this clip. <laughs> but listen, Jack Harlow is great. Um, and I just think there's a lot more to his career than people let on. And so uh, I just wanted to touch on all of those things. But anyway, listen, we're going to we're going to transition from Jack Harlow and why he's so relatable and why he's hot, which, by the way, please feel free to DM me as to why you think Jack Harlow is attractive. Uh, I don't personally see it, but if you do, like, give me the explanation. Give me the deets. I would love to hear it. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about Bridgerton, right? Let's go from rap to TV real quick, because these are two very different things. Um, and Bridgerton is very different than anything I've really talked about for a while. So let's let's talk about Bridgerton for a second, because this is the show that has thrown me for the fucking loop de loop of the loop de loop. Uh, this I have no idea how to feel. It's confusingly good, boring and intriguing all at the same time. <laughs> I have no I have no idea what I've gotten myself into. I've watched like five episodes of Bridgerton and it's great. Um it's 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 pretty good. It's not great. It's pretty good. Uh and I haven't gotten to the second season. So for those of you that are expecting me to talk about oh the Sharmas and the South Asian representation that's going on within Bridgerton, no, I'm not doing that today. Uh so sorry. Sorry to my woke police. We're not doing that. Um because I'm not that into the show and I haven't even gotten to the fact that there's a South Asian character that's just been spoiled for me based on like all the press I've been seeing, at least on my news feeds and all that. So I will I will talk about that at some point uh, when I get 
to the point where I finish maybe season two of Bridgerton. Uh, I just feel like I can't talk about something I haven't seen, so I, I shouldn't comment on it. Uh, but this show is really interesting. I, I really find Bridgerton to be like a puzzle of sorts because it's not your typical teen drama, right? It's not your typical gossip girl. It's not your fucking One Tree Hill. It's not um, Grey's Anatomy. It's just not like drama like that. But it's also got those teen drama elements, right? Like Lady Whistledown, who's kind of like that gossip girl type figure. Uh, but it's a much more nuanced teen drama that's a little bit different in a lot of ways. And I, I like it. I like the take that they went for with it. Um, I I really like also, I was reading some press about Bridgerton earlier. Uh, and I like how they've called the show rather than just like the, they've kind of taken the show in a different direction. Because for those of you that know, Bridgerton takes place in the Regency era of England. But it's not a historical period piece. You know, it's not all about the uh, environment that the lords and the duchess and the dukes grew up in and the royal family and, and like the, you know, high society that's been done before, right? Those shows have been done before. There's That's called the Tudors. That's called the fucking, you know, even Downton Abbey, even though that's a little bit more modern, but Downton Abbey, freaking, there's shows on shows on shows that have been done about the British royals. Who cares? Why do we want to see another one? But the thing is, what's so cool about Bridgerton is it's different. It's different because they took they didn't they don't call it a historical period piece. They call it a reimagination of the war of the historical world. So they integrate elements of modern society and 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 they integrate it within this historical period that is the Regency era. So there are African American not African Americans, I guess British Africans that are playing. Um, you know, uh, high profile king, queen, duchess, duke roles. And you have people of color that are integrated within to the society. And it's it's a very different look, I would say, uh, as a society than probably a Bridgerton historical period piece would be. A Bridgerton historical period piece would be very white, right? It would be very white dominated with maybe occasional African-American servants. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of black characters reach predominant roles on Bridgerton. You're seeing a lot of uh, people of color reach predominant big roles on Bridgerton. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting to see, like I, in terms of the diversity aspect of things. Uh, and I, I really like what they've done. I thought originally when I first saw like the first five minutes of the first episode, I was like, this is literally just Gossip Girl in the 1860s. I was so mad. I was like, this is with this lady whistle down stuff. I was like, oh, my God, like this is just going to be terrible. Like this, I know exactly where this is going. But Lady Whistledown kind of takes a step back, really, after episode one. And you don't really hear a lot from her uh, throughout the show. You, you hear like occasional narration, but that's fine. Like I don't really care. It's very focused on these characters and their complicated family dynamics and these problems. And it's cool because Bridgerton, the way that they construct their characters is that the characters are constricted within these parameters of their very, they're like modern characters in that, like, these are characters that would, like, I could see Daphne Bridgerton and the Duke of Hastings, like, in, like, down the street. Like, they, they would fit into modern society. But yet they also have this tremendous, um, I don't even know how to describe it. They have this like tremendous uh, constraint about them that they need to fit into the societal standards that are put in front of them based on these rules of the Regency era. And so the show sticks to the rules of the Regency era, but it allows their characters kind of modern flair to it, which makes it relatable to the audience. And I really like the way that they've done that. Um, and honestly, I don't hate a main character on the show. Like I like the Duke of Hastings. I think he's cool. I like Daphne. I think Daphne Bridgerton's a lot of fun. 
Um, the brothers are, you know, they're, they're annoying, but they're, they're, they're also fun. And so it balances like the historical boundaries with this innocence. And I think, I think the theme that Bridgerton does better than any show that I've really seen in a while, I think the theme that they do the best is sex. And you probably heard sex and turn this off. If you're an auntie or an uncle, you're like sex. He's talking about sex. What is wrong with him? Huh? Okay. All right. Listen, aunties, uncles, everybody, older people. Let's chill. Let's chill. I'm talking about sex. Yes. I'm not going to talk about. Yes. We're, we're going to talk about sex within the context of Bridgerton. I made that awkward on purpose. I, I don't know why I did that. But when it comes to sex on Bridgerton, it's seen very heavily throughout the show. There are a lot of intimate scenes. There are a lot of scenes of that type of nature. But the way that the writers handle it is so, so phenomenal. It's so good. Like the, the uh, what's it called? Like, yeah, like I, I'd say in the first, like, because I've only gotten through about six episodes of the show. So you can tell me if that changes and if this motif changes. Uh, but the first three, four episodes are like, whatever, right? It's just like normal hookups, like cool, blah, blah, blah. Blah. But I think like sex when it comes to Daphne and the Duke of Hastings, like with her, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling a show, by the way, like her, Daphne's innocence compiled with like the Duke's kind of patience. And I, I just thought it was like a very refreshing take on something within society that's a taboo, but also at the same time, like showed their modern characters off. And I thought that was really cool. And I feel like a lot of shows on TV in general don't handle love and sex well at all. They like corrupt it in a lot of senses. Like I think, I think Euphoria really teeters that line. Like I love Euphoria and it's great, but you know they could handle the love and sex part a little better. And in my opinion, in my opinion, um, and I feel like Bridgerton does the opposite. I feel like Bridgerton does a really good job of showing like what is actual like legitimate, you know, just arranged love. And I think what's weird about this is I've seen this show is very popular with a lot of Indian people, and I'm like, why? it's very clear why the show is popular with Indian people is it's, it, it is like in a lot of ways, our allegorical to arrange marriage. Um, and I like the family dynamics. Like I love the way they've written it. It's, it's very relatable. It's definitely traditional. It's got a very traditional feel to it. And you see those historical boundaries, obviously it's, it's a show that takes place in the Regency era of Britain, but I feel like there is a lot of things that modern audiences relate to when it comes to these characters. Uh, and I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, the first few episodes of Bridgerton, though, are they they weren't my type. They were a little boring. Uh, they moved kind of slow. But I feel like if you get through those downs early on, it really starts to pick up around episode four. That's when you the show the the whole plot, all the characters, all of these things really start to come together. And then you start to kind of get deeper and deeper into what uh, the the good parts of the show, which is which is where you want to be. Um, that being said though, I have not finished the show, so it could get terribly shitty in the next few episodes. I would not be surprised um, because I've seen shows like that, which have a good middle and they have a eh, the kind of so-so beginning, a good middle and a terrible ending. Um, but we'll see. I'm still halfway through the first season. Maybe at some point I'll come back on here and give you my little update as to how I feel. And I may call Bridgerton the worst show ever. I don't know. Um, but I don't think that'll honestly be the case. Uh, this show has surprised me a lot. It has. Uh, it's definitely a very different show. It's got a refreshing take on a lot of issues. And I, I think if you guys are open to a different sort and a different style of show, I think this I think Bridgerton might be the show for you. So definitely check it out. It's on Netflix. Uh, two seasons are out, so it should be uh, available. It's definitely not a quick binge, in my opinion. I think this is a show like you got to take your time with. The episodes are like 57 to like an hour 10 long. So they're kind of longer episodes. Um 
But it definitely is worth it, and the show does pick up after the first couple episodes. So stick with it. I'm telling you this. Uh, I've I've seen Bridgerton be pegged as like a girl show. Not at all. If you're a guy and you like this show, I don't blame you. It's a great show. Um, it has a lot of redeeming qualities to it, and it's it's been it's been a cool ride so far. So I'm excited to kind of finish it and and give you my full thoughts maybe at some point on an after show or something. But I really do like the historical reimagination that they're going for because it's a it's a trend that hopefully we get to see in some other shows as well. Um, yeah, and maybe like some other plot creative plot lines are developed and and whatnot uh, at some point with that whole uh, idea of things. So let's see how it all kind of develops and and comes together. Okay, I got one more topic to get through, and then we're gonna we're gonna complete this. Uh, we're gonna complete the Chingami show. Listen, the news topic of the day. It's not really gonna be a news topic. More so, is it's gonna be a kind of a history topic slash maybe news slash historical trends topic. I guess I want to talk a little bit about the first lady position in the White House. Right? We talked a little bit about the ladies with Bridgerton. Uh, let's transition from the ladies of England to the ladies of America. Right? First ladies. It's a position that we kind of just mention in afterthought a lot of the time when it comes to politics, when it comes to the White House, when it comes to just everything in general. But we don't really know what the hell they do. They just kind of get elected. They're just kind of like along for the ride uh, is kind of the American narrative when it comes to the first lady. They're like, oh, okay, they're just there and uh, we're just going to move on. Like they, they exist. That's it. That is that is it. And uh, and uh, we typically don't care unless they're in the media for doing something bad uh or quote-unquote scandalous right with like hillary clinton like she didn't really no one really cared about her until Lewinsky popped up and then everyone was like oh hillary how are you feeling not great anyway listen what the hell do these people do <laughs> what the hell do first ladies do so let's talk basics of the first lady position okay this was like just a complete question i had in my head i was like what the hell is the first lady like what is what what is going on with the first lady do they just sit there when their husband is in office are we going to see a first gentleman one day like what is what is what is going on with this whole thing okay so usually let's talk basics for the first lady for those of you that don't even know what the first lady is usually the first lady is referred to as the wife of the president that is their official title when they enter the white house they at a certain point in time they were considered to be the most famous woman in america back when the president had that much influence but I bet you right now there are 50% of Americans who cannot name who the first lady of the United States is right now. I'll tell you right now. Her name is Jill Biden. Now you know. Jill, not Joe. Um, <laughs> but listen, for the most part, the role of the first lady is filled by spouses, um, partners, significant others, whatever you want to call it. And there have actually been a few occasions where there has been non-spouses as well. Uh, so there's one situation with Thomas Jefferson, whose wife died way before he got elected to become president. And so his daughter took over the first lady role and she was assisted by another later first lady by the name of Dolly Madison, who served as first lady under James Madison. So for the most part, when the first lady role was initially brought to perspective, uh, like many things in America, when it came to women, it was a ceremonial role in the white house for the most part. Basically, people called you the social chair. You were the social chair of the White House fraternity. <laughs> That's essentially what the first lady role was way back in the day. You were organizing parties. You were organizing galas, events, all of that stuff. You were a rich housewife. That was essentially what the role meant. 
Uh, you were it was you were called the quote official hostess of the White House, and you were to organize all the balls and the various events that took place there and in the nation's capital, all of these things. So with the first few presidents, that was primarily their role was it was social, and so they would continue a lot of that rich British aristocratic nature uh, of just you know balls and you know very eloquent dances and parties and all of that stuff. So for the most part, that's what was going on uh, in our early part of our country's history. The first ladies remained kind of quiet when it came to their political views, when it came to their decisions uh, politically, uh, and they just kind of remi- they they were just kind of the social uh, people. They were the ones who kept the relationships up with people and and all of those things and all that good stuff. And they kind of kept by their husband's side and hung out all day, kind of like what women were originally held to in this country based on patriarchal patriarchal standards. Then, then the role kind of started to shift in the mid-1800s because you had first ladies like Mary Todd Lincoln who were pretty well-known and very outspoken. And Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, unfortunately, was caught in a lot of tragedy because she did lose uh, her son, uh I believe his name's Willie. They they lost him in 1862, but she was known for like throwing like huge parties, extravagant parties, being very outspoken about her political views. And a lot of people in the South, because Mary Todd Lincoln is from the South, uh, thought that she betrayed her Southern roots and was kind of one of these first first ladies uh, to be. And she was one of the first first ladies to really be seen in that national light because there was, I mean, the fucking half the nation hated her, right? They were the Confederate States of America. They're like, what the hell? Like she's, she's just with Abraham Lincoln now. Like this is, this is BS. Um, so she kind of really brought the role to light at a certain point. Then you fast forward to the 1900s a little bit, because this is when the role really started to become political. And it really starts with the pair of Roosevelt. So Edith Roosevelt, who was the wife of Teddy Roosevelt and the first lady when he was president, uh, basically uh, kind of slowly started to build out what the first lady role would do. It wasn't just the social role anymore, but they started hiring staffs and communication staffs and secretaries and all of these things and built it into uh, sort of a an office uh, of sorts where they were actually doing things and becoming uh, a part of the policies that were being made. So they were turning into kind of a more political uh, office uh, as the first lady. And so uh, Edith and Eleanor Roosevelt each made their various contributions uh, to that and to building out like what the first lady would do. And they would work, the first lady's office would be in the East Wing, which is far from the West Wing and all of these things. Um, and so it wasn't just a social position anymore. However, they not, the first ladies still don't have a lot of policy power. They can really only be an influence on their spouse, which has been seen in a variety of ways, which could go a long way. I mean, you look at Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt tremendously influenced Franklin. Um, but, and there's some others, I'm sure of it, but that's about it. That's all really the first lady could do. So what exactly you know, you you, I, you were like a new. These first ladies were building out offices. Like you were just saying that they that there was some sort of role for them. What is the exact role that they had if they didn't have policy power? So here's the thing, right? And before I get into that, look, <laughs> I'll just a quick mention to Jackie Kennedy for being. I mean, Jackie Kennedy is the perfect example of what a first lady typically was supposed to be seen as Jackie Kennedy was seen as attractive. She was seen as the style icon, the celebrity, and she was known for everything else, but her politics and side note, Indian parents just love Jackie Kennedy. I don't know if it's just me, uh, but Indian parents love Jackie Kennedy. Anyway, 
She was known for being a celebrity more than she was being known for actually making change in the country, which is what the first lady should be known as, especially if you're the president's wife, at least in my opinion. I don't know. I don't really know. But that's kind of started to change over time. So Jackie Kennedy, obviously being the exception um, there, you know, there have been first ladies like Rosalind Carter, Laura Bush, Barbara Bush, many who have done a lot of work. So let's go through some of them really quickly and some of the causes that these first ladies have battled for in the past. So you have Lady Bird Johnson, uh, who's Lyndon B. Johnson's wife. She battled for highway beautification and safety. You had Betty Ford, Gerald Ford's wife, who battled for destigmatizing education. Hillary Clinton, who actually was one of the was the first first lady to be integrated into the West Wing, and so she worked with them and really ran point person on healthcare administration, had healthcare policy for the administration. Laura Bush's main cause that she was fighting for was childhood literacy. Michelle Obama's main cause was childhood obesity. Uh, Melania Trump cyberbullying and discouraging that as ironic as that may be and jill biden jill biden the current first lady in office right now has made her policy focus to be helping military families so the question is how much of this has actually been accomplished because let's i'm going to use michelle obama as kind of a case study right because this is the one i know the most about in my opinion my plate was a phase Okay. My plate was a huge phase when I was in high school. What I remember of my plate was that, or not when I was in high school, when I was in elementary school, what I remember of my plate and Michelle Obama's initiative with trying to reduce childhood obesity were that there were posters all over the school telling us what our plates should look like. But the lunch lady still gave me double cookies and double fruit cups if I asked for it. And no one gave a fuck. My plate was kind of just thrown to the side in a lot of extents. And Melania Trump's cyberbullying initiative clearly hasn't gotten off the ground. I mean, where is that at? Like, can we, can we like where did these where did these initiatives go? Betty Ford was destigmatizing addiction in the 1970s, but yet AA is still looked down upon in this country in 2022. What what is happening? Why is there no uh, follow through on these initiatives? Because I feel like if after their husbands complete their terms or finish uh, the election or whatever, like the the first ladies have moved on. I mean, no offense to Michelle Obama. I know everybody loves Michelle Obama and she's everyone's favorite person to love. But Michelle Obama just kind of left my plate and childhood obesity in the dust because what has she done since she left office in 2016? She wrote a book. She went on a huge book tour where she charged like $300 per person to even get into her freaking Q&A sessions. Believe me, I tried. And you get into, you know, that she went on a huge book tour. She wrote a book and now she was quoted in an interview recently saying that she wants to, quote, retire. She wants to retire. So, like, I mean, listen, I'm not faulting Michelle Obama for retiring. I'm not faulting her for any of these things. I just feel like for and this is goes for a lot of first ladies. These feel like just passion projects that are half-assed and fully not seen through because each lady's got a different focus and they're going after these broad, huge, big picture issues. So you can't solve a lot of these things. Destigmatizing edu- like addiction, highway beautification, all of these things are still issues. There hasn't been fundamental changes to any of those things. So what is the solution to actually making the first lady position useful within America? In my opinion, it's to really just take one cause amongst maybe four or five first ladies, change it every 20 years, and focus all your attention on building that cause. 
I don't care if you are not passionate about that cause and you want to shift direction. Because when you shift direction, what happens is every first lady has their own cause. And then when the president uh, or first gentleman potentially in the future, when that happens, the, when the president loses, the first lady slash gentleman in the future is just going to leave. They're just going to dip. And then that passion project is just going to be half-assed like the rest of the first lady initiatives have been for the last 50 years. So what are we really doing? What are the first ladies really doing, right? I don't know. I, I I don't know. I think the coolest part of the first lady was, I, I mean, I don't I don't like Hillary Clinton. I don't really give her a lot of credit, but I'll give her credit for this. I mean, it's super cool to see her back in the 1990s just tapped into the policy side of things and helping her husband out as much as she could. That's cool. That's cool in my opinion. But here's the thing. Are we going to see a lot more of that in the future? I don't know. I mean, you saw, I saw Vice, I saw Vice, which is like this, uh, which is the movie about Dick Cheney, where he basically takes the ceremonial position of the vice president and turns it into like a huge ruling chair where he basically controlled it. Are we going to see a first lady control the president through seduction? Are we going to see a first gentleman, you know, smoothly uh, become a de facto president? Are we going to see a first lady just like be an alpha boss and take over and become the freaking president of the United, like president of the United States through being a first lady? I don't know. I don't freaking know where the future of the first lady position is going, but it's just thoughts to think about because what really is the first lady doing? And I'm not trying to underestimate, understate the importance of the first lady. Okay. I know the first lady has been important and they can be really good unifiers for the country and they can go tremendously underrated, but I don't know. I feel like there should be some changes to the position and that's all I'm saying. Okay. Or maybe they should actually get to work with the presidents and be uh, more actively involved in politics if that's what they choose to do. Or they should just keep normal civilian jobs, like whatever they were doing in the past. Like, just do that. Just do that. Live their life. Why do you have to go after a cause if you don't want to? Like, I don't know. Anyway, that's my thoughts on First Ladies. And that's the show that I have today. We're wrapping it up. Hour and nine minutes. I know this went long. I appreciate all of you for sticking with me. Thank you so much for listening to The Changavi Show, episode 31 in the books. Appreciate all of you that have stuck with me to the end. If you're on Spotify, feel free to hit that follow button. If you're on YouTube, go and like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, also, if you're on any other podcasting platform, feel free to leave me a good review or a shitty one. Tell me why. Give me feedback. I'm always down to hear it. If you guys want to join the Chang Gang on all social media platforms, feel free to do so. I'm on Facebook now for all my old heads out there. So go like my page and go follow my page. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. All under the handle at The Changabi Show. The Changabi Show, just the way it's spelled. You type that into any social media platform. You can hit the follow button and follow me. Um, yeah, and that's all I got, really. Uh, this is episode 31, Changabi, a new Changabi, signing off from the Bay Area, from his parents' house, late at night with my computer at 5% battery life. It's an honor to do this show. I appreciate all of you for sticking with me. Hope you guys have a great day. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. All right, guys. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to do that Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Finish every show now. Yeah, that's what we're doing. All right, all right, all right. All right, everybody. Peace.